In his 1968 collection of essays titled Identity, Youth, and Crisis, German-American psychologist Eric Erickson attempts to define three interacting facets of what he calls ego identity. The first he refers to as one's biological characteristics, meaning characteristics that a person is born with. Examples of this would be height, weight, bone structure. The second, one's own unique psychological needs, interests, and defenses, describes personal psychological needs such as likes and dislikes, personal affinities, and particular interests. Lastly, Erickson defined the third facet as being the cultural milieu in which one resides. This final facet concerns an individual's religious and cultural preferences, as well as their socioeconomic status, the national-slash-international political climate, and the particularity of their location geographically. Together, as Erickson states, these three facets contain the multi-layered, intricate dimensions of what makes us as humans aware of the self, which in turn influences the way we see others. Or in other words, these three facets help to make up our identity. The individualized, unique, and form-fitting components that comprise each facet of our personal identity are ones that are either inseparable from our physical bodies or are carefully chosen through trial and error, life experiences or environmental influences, such as the opinion of our friends and our family. No matter how we arrive at the realization and ownership of each small slice of our identity, the most important thing to keep in mind is that most of us have the privilege of choice. Meaning, aside from our non-negotiable physical features, which even at times those are negotiable, we are able to choose what does and does not represent us. In this way, we are exploring who we are and what we can best do to support ourselves. But what becomes of the self that has no choice? No room to explore what will be. Imagine. Instead of choosing who you are or who you want to be, you were simply told what you were and what you would be. Similarly, imagine having the name that has come to define you, your signifier since birth, boiled down to calculated numbers, completely and totally void of any color or essence or singularity. Imagine the complex puzzle of your identity pulled into pieces and tossed to a pyre. Just like other victims and survivors of the Holocaust, the puzzle of Pierre Seal's identity was disassembled and scattered amongst the ashes, and it would take 40 years of searching before he came close to discovering something. Silence can be solid, like the surface of a sea never breaking. 
but truth gains traction. And when others lend their voices to the truth, what once was a trickle soon turns torrential. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival and the Holocaust. Episode 2, The Stolen Watch, The Silent Devouring, Part 2. While the ravaging of his lover stayed locked in place, vividly in his mind, Pierre's time at Shermet continued in a black and white slow motion. With each passing day, he became more settled and accustomed to the tireless labor, the bottomless hunger, the beatings the death. After being forced to bear witness to his love being torn from this world, what else was the Nazi regime capable of? The possibilities seemed menacingly limitless. November 1941 came like the ticking of a slow-moving clock. Pierre was assigned to a new labor group that would construct new stations within the grounds of Shermek. It was only after weeks of building that some within the group began to realize that the towering structure would not be additional barracks or home stations for commandants. It would become an eventual resting place for the hundreds of now skeletal bodies that walked the grounds of Shermek, a crematorium. Before the foreboding possibilities had time to set in, Seal Peter was summoned by the loudspeaker to the commandant's office. As he sat across from the normally enraged camp commandant, Carl Buck, Pierre braced his mind and his body for what would come next. But ultimately, no bracing could prepare him for what orders he received. After six months in Shermack prison camp, he would be released. Based on information from Buck's henchmen, the boy had been an exemplary prisoner. The praise of the henchmen and Carl Buck would earn him a train ride home, the chance to become a full-fledged German citizen, and the astute honor of being allowed to hail Hitler when leaving the commandant's office. The only stipulation was one of silence. He was, under no circumstances, allowed to slip any mention of the happenings, let alone existence, of Shermek to anyone. So under threat of barbed wire wrapped labor yet again, Pierre's time at Shermek had ended just as it had begun, with the strike of a pen on paper. 
Although he ventured past the gates of Shermek with his body, the trauma of the last six months traveled with him. Upon his arrival home, what should have been a ceremonious occasion, was marked instead with more silence. This time, the silence of his family. As he graced the dining room doorway of his family home, his father rose from the dinner table to present him with a gold watch and a simple greeting. Here, son, this is my welcome home present. Sit down with us. We won't say anything more about it. And with this greeting, the silence of Pierre and his family was sealed. His mother would be the only member of his family to ever break it, and that would be years later on her deathbed. His time home would be short-lived and uneasy. He favored the stiffness of his room floor over the softness of his bed, and items that once fit perfectly into the life of Pierre Seal. Books, clothes, and keepsakes were all, as he says, part of a distant identity from before my annihilation. Just as he had done only months before, Pierre grew accustomed to the malaise, the darting eyes, the silence. But on the first day of spring in March 1942, he would trade the sound of silence for that of bullets and destruction and death. With the signature he gave upon his leaving of Shermek, Pierre was now recognized as a German citizen. Therefore, giving himself eligibility to fight in a German war for the offense and defense of Germany. So on the first day of spring, scalding salt was poured onto a fresh wound. The boy who was tortured by Germans for the so-called sake of the race would now fight with those same men to hopefully win their war. Although it seemed there was nothing left to erase, in the years that followed his conscription, Pierre's identity would be buried deeper and deeper inside of him. He would spend until the fall of 1944 fighting for the German army. During this time, he worked as an orderly of a commandant and was sent to a German Lebensborn Center, a place where Norwegian blonde women were kidnapped from their homes to birth Aryan children for a repopulation of Hitler's Germany. This was a tactic used to coerce him towards the side of women. The boy originally from Alsace was forced to wear a swastika armband and bear witness to more death, this time of his fellow soldiers. But as the days grew closer and closer to 1945, it became more apparent that the situation was dire and cusping on hopeless. On the eventual orders of his commanding officer, Pierre fled. He would come in close contact numerous times with death. 
but continued to evade an ending like that after he had survived Shermack. On the 7th of August, 1945, Pierre stepped back onto Parisian soil, this time more of a stranger to himself than ever. His reunion with his family did nothing to bring the Alsatian boy closer back to who he used to be. Pierre pins in his memoir, I thus lived through four years of solitude, surrounded by whispers, a great silence made up of painful sadness and invisible renunciation. His family continued to keep their silence about his suffering, all except his mother. She had taken on a fatal sickness and Pierre had taken on caring for her and making sure she was comfortable. And it was during this time the seal of silence slid open between mother and son. Pierre spoke then for the first time of the horrors he experienced at Shermack, about the devastation and dehumanization of Joe, and what all of those occurrences had done to his spirit. Although the great pain it brought her was obvious, she listened to it all. A few short weeks later, his mother, the keeper of his secrets, and the only person to know of his love for Joe, died. He lamented after her passing. When she died, she took with her the memory of my incarceration in the camp, my homosexuality, Joe's murder. My life was now cut in two, and my memory was buried with my mother, who had made it possible for me to open up. With her passing, any semblance of relief Pierre had felt was slid back behind the sealed silence he had come to know all too well. It was June 6th, 1949. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn. And artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear how Root and Branch We'll use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. The boy in the cardboard clothes is crying in the middle of the circular garden. His tears are ash. His face is ghost white. It smells of burnt hair and pungent fumes brass shackle, as big as a car tire, secured around his leg. Suddenly, it bursts into flames and burns away. The boy is free. I look up, and the clock tower is eerily covered in smoke, all the way up and down its decorative latticework trunk. As the boy stands at the base, 
The summit is occupied by his family. Or what's left of them. Half ashen black. Half as white as sheets. The boy begins to climb. Drawn especially to a golden watch. Dangled temptingly over him by his father. Once he finally reaches for the watch, his touch snaps a trap around his head and mouth. He thrusts himself over the stone top to join his half-alive family. Each of them have traded mouths for padlocks made of flesh. They all have been sealed in silence. The father tosses the key to unlatch them into the billowing flames below. As I skirt across the field, a German train plows through the wheat and soil. The propeller, a swastika, is spinning in swirls as swastikas engulf the entirety of the machinery. It's here for the boy in the cardboard clothes. As the angry side door screeches open, his clothes dissipate, leaving him only to be covered in swastikas. He is sparking at the seams, but no flames take. This is only an act of appeasement. I see bouquets of bubbling water coming from the middle of the pond. Sparks begin to gather inside the pockets of air. The ashen family of the boy is circling the water's perimeter and staring intently into the murky, red abyss. But just as they begin to get closer, the boy bursts through the center, extinguishing all flames. His padlocked mouth is still intact. He wears nothing but a pink triangle facing downward. He notices his mother's mouth has cracked open. They both begin to cry and reach for each other. But just as his shackle burned into oblivion, so did his mother, scattered by the wind across the surface of the pond. He stands in silence with his father, still clutching the clock he had been given.